Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a paper recorded at Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, 2020-2023, Civil Wars and Their Legacy. This conference took place in Queen's University Belfast on the 10th of March, 2017. The conference was organised as part of the Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, 2020-2023, in conjunction with Queen's University School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the Institute of Irish Studies, and the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice. Commemorating Partition and Civil Wars in Ireland, 2020-2023, is a project run by Dr. Marie Coleman and Dr. Dominic Bryan that examines approaches to the upcoming centenary of the Partition of Ireland. All four papers of the conference were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now publicly available on History Hub. This episode features a paper by Dr. Gemma Clark from the University of Exeter. The paper, The Nature of Communal Violence in the Irish Civil War, was introduced by Dr. Marie Coleman. We'll go into a more detailed exploration of the nature of violence in the Irish Civil War with uh, Dr. Gemma Clark from Exeter, who I think uh, t- has taken up a, a point made by the late Peter Hart uh, in his looking for looking towards how the history of the Irish Revolution should be written. And he pointed out something which I suppose was uh, staring us all in the face, that we needed to look more about the actual nature of violence in the Irish Civil War, and Gemma's recent book, um, Everyday Violence in the Irish Civil War, has done just that, and it's looked at the nature of uh, damage to property, violence against uh, the person, and why one of those tended to be more um, prevalent than the other. Well, thanks very much to everyone here for coming, to Queen's for hosting us. Um, Especially thanks to Marie, not only for inviting me, organising the list, but also for all your work on the revolution, which... Has, you know, she continues to draw and has helped me a lot as I kind of embarked on this on this area, this interest. Thanks to Bill for his for his talk, and I agree. You know, he's, uh, with the idea of, of challenging and and thinking about the value of, of the word revolution as a descriptor for this whole decade that we're kind of now commemorating. Um, but for me, anyway, it's I can see how and why. It's a term that's gained currency, especially in recent, recent years. And it's something I think a lot about um, in my teaching when looking at the nature of the change in Ireland over this time. So I did really kind of want to start today by like, locating my work on the Civil War within that kind of historiographical framework. Thinking about the Civil War of 1922 to 23, in other words, as the final stage in what's known now as the Revolution which was the decade or more of mass political participation and militarisation of Irish society that began um, with the crisis and the um, political impasse over the Home Rule Bill of 1912. So revolution is valuable for me because it signifies the global events like the First World War and domestic insurgencies, the Easter Rising, the War of Independence, that resulted in the redrawing of constitutional relationships within and between the UK and Ireland. So the partition of UK-controlled Northern Ireland and establishment of the Free State as a self-governing dominion of the British Commonwealth was followed, as you all know, because you're here today, by um, a bitter civil war um, between pro-treaty supporters of the independence settlement on the one hand and anti-treaty Republican forces on the other, holding out for full separation 
from the British Crown. So at a local level too, uh, communities turned against so-called loyalists, those associated in some way with the old British regime. So the, the top image on the side, if you can see it okay, is... Uh, depicts the kind of the relatively contained, which is something um, Bill mentioned and I'm sure Thomas is going to explore, uh, relatively militarily in terms of deaths and uh, destruction uh, to human life, phase of the Civil War, from the shelling of the Republican-occupied four courts in June 1922 until September that year, by which time the Free State Army or national troops had reasserted its authority in local communities, including the anti-treaty Republican hotspots in the southwest, which I've researched and I'll be talking more about today. So the bottom image, again to which I'll return later, is an excerpt from a threatening letter received by a Methodist shopkeeper um, in Lismore and County Waterford. And this letter encapsulates, for me, the later guerrilla phase um, of the Civil War, from September 1922 to the dumping of arms by Republicans in May 1923, during which time the conflict was characterised not by conventional military uh, formations of violence, but relatively low-intensity uh, acts such as arson, boycott threats, acts that were committed by and against civilians. Um, and I didn't want to sort of spend too much time on this kind of narrative um, because I'm hoping that when we, you know, when we talk in our questions, um, especially having the, the, the comparative Finnish case, which I'm really looking forward to hearing about, we'll be able to address some of these questions of where, what happened in Ireland, where it sits in a bigger picture. But I did, on the other hand, want to start with this bigger picture of, of revolution and outline a little bit about what I think of, of this decade because I wanted to locate my research on the Civil War in this wider revolutionary story and specifically to flag two key arguments that I'll make this afternoon. The first one is, my first key argument, is that uh, a local study, a micro-study of three Munster counties in my case, can add usefully to wider understanding on the nature of Ireland's revolution, revolution or revolution, whichever you prefer. Um, and, the and what I mean by this is the, the impetus within some communities towards division along social, even perhaps ethnic lines. And I'll focus today on what um, my research on, on counties Limerick, Tipperary and Waterford reveals about the form and function of communal violence in civil war. And I argue that aggressive and intimidating acts served as community regulation to drive out of the new state political and religious minorities perceived to be loyal to Britain in attacks that sometimes had the related aim um, of seizing property and forcing land redistribution. My second uh, related goal today, which is particularly pertinent for this event and indeed more broadly in this decade of, of uh, centenaries, is to give a voice not only to, um, to quote John Borgonovo, embattled loyalists who do feature very strongly in my book, but also to remember those on all sides who suffered loss and injury during this, this kind of uh, fairly contained but nonetheless intensive conflict of 1922 to three. So, and, you know, as, as Bill noted, this is predominantly a, a story about a war on property, not against people, and that's a really interesting thing to, um, to draw out. And, 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 and listening to his talk and thinking about colonial frameworks, I found really helpful to think about, is this what's happening with the violence? Are they 
um, especially Republicans, undoing physically and symbolically um, bastions of British and colonial state power rather than having to try and destroy um, ideologies by destroying, by killing people because, as we just heard in that talk, the, the, many of the values shared across uh, these factions were um, that had some commonality. So in reaching these uh, key conclusions, hopefully by the end of this like, half hour or so, I'm going to draw on the findings um, of my book, which is shown on the screen and also held up by Marie just earlier, um, which is now also a little plug available in paperback, which makes it a lot more affordable should your library not have one yet. So something to bear in mind. OK, so what do I mean by community regulation? What exactly occurred in Ireland's towns, villages and rural estates? during 1922 to 23. To answer these questions, I'm not going to focus on armed combat between pro and anti-treaty forces. Civil war ambushes, skirmishes over barracks and so forth have already been amply uh, analysed in the late Michael Hopkinson's pathbreaking Green Against Green, again depicted on the slide. Rather, what I do is I use victims' accounts of wartime injury as recorded in compensation claims submitted following that civil war uh, from counties Limerick, Tipperary and Waterford, which I'm sure you all know. And I looked at these compensation claims, in other words, and counted and categorised the violence that I found recorded therein. Um, and this was predominantly violence experienced by civilians, usually, though not exclusively, at the hands of the anti-treaty IRA. And the map on, um, on the left is just a, is, is a general a kind of geographical uh, map, but you can see... On the, on the right, um, this was drawn for me by uh, geographers at UCC and they're going to publish this in their Atlas of the Irish Revolution, which is coming out, I think, now this month. So another worthwhile publication to look into and get for you. So, I mean, the one they did on the famine, I thought, was, was brilliant. So um, hopefully this one will be good too. So I didn't set out to investigate any one particular group's experience of the conflict. Um, but nonetheless, the first trend that emerged from the sources that I looked at is one of what I call minority persecution. And I use this term rather than say religious persecution because it encompasses Munster's uh, small non-Catholic, predominantly Episcopalian, Anglican population and those variously called unionists or loyalists connected to Britain, perhaps by their ancestry, as denoted largely by their religion, but not exclusively, but also, or perhaps instead, by their political associations and employment in the service of the state, of the British state, the colonial state. It's also worth saying a word at this point about the material in which these losses um, were captured, the material on which this, this map, these maps are based, um, namely applications for compensation submitted to the British government's uh, Loyalist Relief Scheme and also the, the Free State's own damage to property procedures. So, um, like all sources, compensation claims, as depicted by the little fellas with the bandages, uh, contain biases and inaccuracies. Um, but keeping in mind these limitations, and I'm sure we can all imagine what they might be, um, I'm happy to talk about that more in questions. Analysis of these documents uh, alongside other sources has been vital in bringing to light previously hidden acts of violence and intimidation. So that's where their value lies, really, in recording things that typically go unrecorded or aren't prosecuted in more formal um, criminal justice systems. This compensation data prov proves um, that Protestants, 
on the one hand and and often these overlap those connected to British rule in Ireland such as ex-servicemen and Royal Irish Constabulary personnel were targeted disproportionately with intimidation, interpersonal violence, house burnings and other property damage um, resulting in some significant um, departures from the Free State. So we have a couple of figures there um, in terms of ha what, what are the statistics on this, what are the kind of patterns. So we've got 20%, uh, I looked at arson attacks specifically for these figures because they're kind of relatively easy to, to quantify. So around a fifth of arson attacks are attributable officially to the claimant's allegiance to the United Kingdom. And a quarter of all buildings burned, at least the ones I kind of counted, in the three Munster counties were big houses. And I'm sure you all know what big houses are, but what I mean is the Protestant, typically Protestant Unionist-owned um, mansions, these local landmarks, often at the heart of the rural economy, um, that were built during the waves of English conquest um, in Ireland since the plantation era. In other words, they might not sound um, blindingly um, bi biased against a certain group, but what we're seeing is disproportionate targeting, and this is the statistical evidence for it. So um, a quarter of buildings burned are those that make up far less than a quarter of, of buildings inhabited in the province. And actually, these statistics um, got to, have got to be read alongside the more qualitative data as well, because I arrived at them by making calculations, by identifying burnings for which the British government awarded compensation, though there are, of course, many reasons why a recognisably loyalist claimant didn't or couldn't seek redress through this avenue. So... To supplement these figures and the statistics, um, I've also tried in my book to tell a, a kind of wider narrative and a quali uh, qualitative story uh, and use individuals and families' accounts, which I think is kind of useful, especially in the, today's context of commemoration, thinking about loss, thinking about memory. So how do we exactly explain this targeting, supposed or apparent, of civilians? Is there a causal connection between communal violence in the civil war and population decline. And it's true that um, an already very small, uh, small minority was in decline before the Civil War began. So these, this is a table of some um, information from, from this, the, um, the census, um, which, as you'll know, probably also was taken in 1911 and then the next one not until 1926. So there are some, some problems in pinpointing exact figures at any one time, but... Um, Again, as I'm sure you'd expect, you know, Protestants traditionally being urban-based in, in Munster comprised a relatively large minority in places like Limerick and Waterford cities, but in the counties, non-Catholics made a much smaller and crucially ever-shrinking group. You know, in other words, they'd been in decline since 1911 for various reasons that we'll explore. So in terms of statistics for this, between these census states, the non-Catholic population of the 26 counties that will become the free state fell by 33% compared with a population decline of 5%. So in other words, again, this is a question of disproportionality, this um, particular minority, this group, social demographic group is, is on the decline more sharply than the majority. And Munster's Protestant population fell particularly sharply during these years by 45%. And now there are, of course, several economic, social, other demographic reasons why Irish Protestants were in decline at a much faster rate than were Catholics during the Revolution, not least the withdrawal of um, 
from Ireland of the British administration and armed forces and, of course, death during the First World War. Around 100,000 Protestants departed Ireland between 1911 and 1926, but they weren't, of course, all forced out by any stretch of the imagination. And research continues on the precise timing of, to quote Andy Bielenberg's article, the Protestant exodus. Um, and the causal connection between depopulation and sectarianism is fiercely contested in public and the press still today. I'm sure, you'll, again, Larry, you'll be familiar with some of these um, headlines, um, titles of more provocative books in the historiography um, and kind of more uh, public uh, facing publications like the Revolution Papers that have delved into this a little bit more over the last year. Um, on the academic side, of course, David Fitzpatrick's work is very important, and he concluded uh, that communal violence and IRA terror, so the kind of things I'm looking at today, uh, in West Cork, quote, lacked the power to break the spirit of the Methodist minority there. Uh, and certainly there was in Ireland no state-sanctioned cleansing of religious... And political minorities um, akin to the systematic killing of ethnic uh, outgroups as seen in Europe at the time. You know, we think we can think, of course, of Armenians in in what is now Turkey, 1915 to 17, and the so-called forcible exchange of Greeks and Turks in in 1923 with the founding um, of the the Turkish state. Nonetheless, there was in Revolutionary Ireland, and again, this is where I'm coming back to this term revolution in order to situate these arguments in this bigger picture of social um, conflict as much as political transformation. There was in this, in this period what um, Bielenberg identifies as a residual range of somewhere between two and 16,000 Protestants whose leaving can't be attributed to normal voluntary migration. And I contend, based on my research on Civil War Munster, that some of these people were forced out, they were chased out. Now, the burning of um, big houses, which is kind of where all my interest in this began, not practically, just, you know, intellectually, was uh, an obvious way for Republican forces to remove British landlord and, by default, Protestant interests from local communities. And Terence Dooley has has um, has looked at this um, process and in his book on the Irish Big House and noted, you know, with some interest that more houses of these mansions were destroyed in the Civil War rather than the War of Independence. And as I mentioned from my own research, I found that a quarter of all buildings burned in those three counties were big houses, which is quite a striking statistic. So as depicted in J.G. Farrell's Troubles and other wonderful kind of big house novels, that there are many of those we can, we can look to, the way of life, these landmarks, these big houses, that's Gregano Park in Tipperary, um, the way of life they represented was largely outmoded. Land purchase legislation had, since the early 20th century, begun to chip away at the great estates of the Anglo-Irish nobility. And many big house owners had left before the Civil War even began, so in this case... Um, Gregno Park was occupied by four servant girls when it was burnt in February 1923. Nevertheless, in some communities at least, the big house had continued into the early 1920s to provide a refuge from the outside world for some of these members of the elite. Um, and my research has looked at a few of I mean, many of these case studies. We've got the likes of Major Morrell um, from Tullamane Castle in Tipper County Tipperary, who, to quote the Clonmel Chronicle, had, regardless of expense modernised his property um, to include kennels for his foxhounds. So he had this life of privilege, in other words, um, which was very suddenly, violently, quickly 
and easily actually taken away with straw soaked in paraffin and a single match. And this is kind of the, the, a lot of these narratives are, are, you know, which may be disputed. But if you go look in this kind of military history, military um, history witness statements about some of the more dangerous aspects of arson setting. But overall, it's kind of it's a, quite an easy, accessible, effective way to remove this privilege and this beautiful and extensive residence, the likes of Greyno Park are destroyed. In Morell's case, his home, Tullamane, was burned in October 1922 by occupying anti-treaty Republicans as the national troops approached. In this sense, arson is the ultimate act of of defiance against the old order. As you can see in these kind of before and after shots of of Gregno, fire rips off the roof and sort of chars the walls with smoke and literally opens up... um, opens up the, the, the house to the outside, reclaiming the landscape, of, landscape from, from the coloniser. Um, and after such a vicious and indeed highly symbolic, you know, destructive attack, many big houses weren't rebuilt but simply abandoned to the ele- elements. So that's an image from my book, that's Rappler House in County Tipperary. So Arson sent a powerful message, not only to the mansion owner, but also to the community left behind. And you didn't have to live in one of these big houses to be targeted by wartime arson, such as it is, is its power and efficacy. And I've looked at land hunger as a key motivator for fire setting across the community, um, revealing that many kind of middle class uh, Catholic graziers so those who'd kept large pastures for cattle rather than tillage, and other farmers or tenants who recently, or as it was perceived unfairly, acquired their land, uh, lost crops and outhouses to the flames during the Civil War. So this is um, a testimony from one of these, um, actually not from a compensation claim, but from a statement from the um, Irish Unionist Alliance. So it's a good, it's a helpful reminder as well of this idea of, of, of loyalism and unionism and an identity that's not just based or not just drawn along sectarian or religious lines. Um, but various people were deemed as not to be fitting with this vision of, of, the, of the Republican state that the anti-treaty area were trying to hold out for through continued violence in, in a challenge to the newly established free state. So he says, what is the reason for attacking a poor man like me? I have no quarrel with anybody in Stanwell with my neighbours. I'm a Catholic. This is that these ruffians want to steal my land and divide it amongst themselves. We are faced with utter ruin. So what these attacks on more modest properties like Horgan's often had in common with the burning of the big house, which is the kind of more spectacular, famous aspect of this conflict, was the complicity of some members, at least, of, of the local community. Arson causes financial devastation in rural economies, um, but it fires also a highly public attack that makes the victim feel unwelcome in a wider social context. And the symbolic and practical power of fire as a tool um, of communal protest is something I'm exploring in a new project that I'm now doing at at Exeter, which is a history of arson in modern Ireland. Um, So that's just some of the kind of imagery I'm working with and thinking about um, fire as, as a key icon, a key symbol of, of resistance, which of course takes many forms in this particular context, it's republicanism. So arson's unambiguous, you know, <laughs> obviously. The permanent destruction of a home by fire uh, removes the victim from the area, either until he can rebuild, 
or forever. And in this next uh, short section, I'm going to talk a little bit more, not about more subtle, invidious tactics that nonetheless serve the same objective as did arson in these local communities to isolate, humiliate and ultimately clear out an identifiable victim. Threats, property damage, animal maiming, boycotts, land seizure and so on created a frightening atmosphere in the communities I studied, um, particularly in Munster. This was a feeling that unease that could lead, didn't necessarily, but could lead to departure from one's home, business or lands. I found that often during the Civil War, the threat of physical force um, was enough on its own to make people leave. And this is where um, my research on the Civil War intersects by, with sort of interesting work that's been done on intimidation in other contexts, including in like Northern Ireland and more urban spaces and thinking about how much choice people of different social classes, for example, have um, when faced with violence or threat of violence in taking that decision to leave. In the Civil War, these threats often took the forms of letters, this traditional Irish um, mode of warning that harks back to the land wars of, of um, the late 19, mid to late 19th century. And as such, such letters borrowed land war pseudonyms like Rory of the Hill. And so you were still getting letters from Captain Moonlight in 1920s and motifs such as the hand-drawn coffins containing the recipient's name. So whilst the authorship of these letters can't always be proved, quasi-legal language framed these notes um, delivered in person or posted on, on um, boundaries of properties and so forth as orders that had to be obeyed and typically recipients responded with due urgency. So I've got one here, another um, sample from, from some of the research from Munster, which was received by Ada Veer Hunt of Longfield House in Cashel. Um, sometime towards the end of the war, no date, but it must be because of the, the attack that's referenced in this letter. Allegedly from... Andy Donnelly, this was the information provided, who was the officer in charge of the mid-Tipperary division of the IRA, um, which may have been fairly grandiose by turn by this stage when a lot of the military organisation had broken down into more of these guerrilla bands. But certainly he at least was wanting to claim um, responsibility for this. She, he says, the letter says, Mrs Hunt, you bloody Protestant, you needn't think the staters are going to get Longfield's back for you, we'll give We'll put decent Catholics in your husband's place. We'll give you what we gave Clark. If you set a foot in it, you made a dear bargain when you kept money from us. So Clark is the owner of the, of the mansion, uh, Guigno Park, that was burned down. So um, that might help us to date it to sort of after February 1923. We've got a lot going on here in, the, in this letter, but it, gives, it does give us a sense of these kind of complex motivations around communal violence and the convergence in these attacks. Um, and on, a, on a micro level, which helps us to understand what the war was about more broadly, between um, land hunger, sectarianism and anti-British sentiment, which, isn't, which is often related, but not necessarily. Um, so the Verhunts were, on the one hand, clearly identifiable as Protestants, but also as loyalists. And in their compensation claim, they talk about having entertained a column of the Lincolnshire Regiment at Longfield House in early 1921, as this being something that marked them out um, as, as being of, of, of dubious of uh, a dubious character. The letters also seems to be a boast as well as a warning. Longfield had already been seized by the readers at the time of writing. They say, you know, you're never going to get it back. And the Veer Hunts, along with the new 
state, free state governments, and not the British protectors anymore, um, were helpless to resist these kind of local calls of land for the people. And actually, it wasn't until June 1924, so the following year, that they got access back um, to, to the property at Longfields, which had indeed been coveted for some years, according to testimony, by landless men in the vicinity. And the unpaid money referred to in the letter um, is relates to these demands that were made um, by the IRA for a levy, which weren't paid. I wanted to include some of these, these cases, again, to sort of think about this term revolution and where this term, this conflict fits. Because certainly Ireland's wasn't a social economic revolution, rather a political, constitutional transformation or restructuring, a transfer of state power to at least part of Ireland. Um, but what's helpful by examining these kind of local accounts and thinking about where they fit in more into the national picture is that we can engage with agrarian issues. We can see that clearly British legislation over the years, the Free State's Own Land Act, hadn't solved rural poverty. So combatants and civilians, and it's often such as the nature of civil war difficult to tell the difference between the two, had been using intimidation to enact land redistribution for themselves outside the official channels. And I noted earlier that middle-class uh, graziers, or, um, or many Catholic farmers, were targeted by crop and outhouse burning. And the kind of techniques and tactics that the Veer Hunts experienced, so land outright seizure, cattle driving, um, were also used on, on these, these groups who weren't traditional loyalists to harass and demoralise until the target surrendered his land. So while some histories play down social agitation during the Civil War, it seems likely to me that um, some frustrated small farmers and labourers potentially joined, um, to quote a Free State Army report, the roving bands of the anti-treaty IRA and in these gangs seized farms, scattered cattle and in some more gruesome cases maimed and killed animals. So we've looked so far at violent tactics deployed within communities to enforce locally agreed codes on, say, land use. Um, boycotting, which is one of the kind of, I've sort of the final um, example before I get on to the conclusion, uh, was another wartime, civil wartime specifically phenomenon that depended on the complicity of the victim's neighbours, friends, former customers. Um, Again, as I'm sure you know, boycott has, of course, this very strong association with Irish history, having originated um, in the famous land war struggle between Captain Charles Boycott and the Land League on Lord Erne's County Mayor Estate. His uh, attempts to serve eviction notices were met by complete aversion within the local community, so then this familiar rural practice of exclusive dealing became rechristened as boycotting, um, and then became widely used against enemies of the Land League, so those who opposed their campaign for fair rents, anyone who participated in evictions. It then gets adapted during the later revolution in interesting ways, um, not in only in rural contexts, but in urban contexts too. And um, enemies of the community, of the local economy, or of, I guess you could say more broadly, of the Republic, as imagined by the anti-treaty IRA, um, which you know, included a fairly broad spectrum, you know, those who had acquired land unjustly, those who benefited from landlordism or were in some ways connected with the British administration or the free state government could be boycotted 
um, in various ways, their business, uh, their their practice. And there's strong evidence from the Civil War period that businesses were actively punished for services to the old regime. So we have lots of these stories, but we have someone like Edward Scales from Tipperary who was boycotted because he'd sold butter previously to the RIC prior to their evacuation from Templemore Barracks. There are hundreds more similar accounts. So we've got the boycotting as punishment, but we've also got um, boycotting as a kind of economic tool targeted specifically against the minority. So to weaken the influence and the position of those Protestants and loyalists, in, including in areas where their commercial influence had once been strong. So we finally get on to Willie Rowe, who's, who's um, threatening letter, as I talked about earlier. And he's in Lismore in County Waterford. He has a grocery and fancy stationery store. So this is an obvious target for provisions early in the war, early in the Civil War. Raids on um, Protestant businesses by the often desperate and under-resourced Republicans. You know, they're a guerrilla force. They may in that sense appear more sectarian than they really were, and that if you need supplies, you're going to go to the better shops, and they're typically the Protestant shops. But in this case, we get an accompanying threatening notice um, from the IRA setting out some some of um, more explicitly, uh, I guess, sectarian uh, motivations. The notice ordered Roe and his family to clear out or be, quote, shot at sight and burned in your house, um, and revealed the author's wide ambitions we will clear all the bloody Protestants out of this town also. So this promise to clear all the Protestants, which is interesting because it suggests that perhaps in the attacker's eyes, um, Roe was a part of a sort of sizable Protestant contingent in Lismore and there was some tension between him, his kind of gentry patrons of his fancy stationery store and the majority of the town. And he's only one of four Methodists in the whole district, but Protestants as a whole make up 9% of, of Lismore um, in 1911. So he's, he's from a relatively, um, a relatively established population. And he could certainly be counted as a member of what the Church of Ireland Gazette at the time called the small Protestant communities in the towns who had, quote, developed comparative prosperity to then be considered fair game once the civil war broke out. And this is one of the questions I really like to answer, thinking about the timing of these hostilities and what it is about the civil war in particular and the nature of the political, the constitutional, the macro conflict that translates into these squabbles with Methodist shopkeepers. He actually, so Roe wasn't chased out in the end. So this is an important counter-narrative to some of the really kind of strong um, arguments of, say, Peter Hart in terms of the, the vicious sectarian nature of the violence. He managed to stay. He was OK. But he does say, despite these terrible threats against him, that even as late as 1927, anti-British sentiment, quote, is still a practical factor and influence in this neighbourhood. And trade is placed where that sentiment is acceptable. So that I've lost and now losing, still losing trade. OK, so as we bring things to, to a conclusion, um, we can see from these individual testimonies, you know, the fact that Rose survived into 27, um, and indeed looking more broadly at the statistics, um, at the population data, that the Free State did not violently repress or dispose of Protestants. Official records actually show a government at pains to appear just in its treatment of the minority. Church of Ireland leaders agreed their congregations had a, quote, square deal in independent Ireland, and local Protestants in Nina at a town meeting in County Tipperary commented that they had, quote, less to grieve about 
living under Dublin uh, rule, under the Free State, than did Catholics facing discrimination and loyalist police and paramilitary brutality in the partitioned Northern Ireland state. Nonetheless, as I hope today's lecture has brought to light through a few of these kind of select examples from my research, sectarianism sometimes surfaced during the Civil War. An anti-minority and anti-British undercurrent, particularly pervasive in Munster's local communities, could easily turn to violence in the face of disloyalty or transgressions over land, politics and religion. Um, just a couple of quotations to kind of capture some of these tensions. Harriet Bagwell, uh, she, she's the mother of, um, a, who's an interesting person who's on the one hand a typical um, British Unionist and loyalist, but on the other kind of accepts Cosgrave's invitation to become more involved in the running of the new state and, and is a member of the Shannard. His house, as a consequence of one or both of those actions, is, is burned down. She talked about the atmosphere, this threatening atmosphere that existed in her county at the time. She said, every man went in fear of his neighbour and the plight of Protestants living in lonely farms and cottages, of whom there were many in that country, was pitiable. Bagwell's words um, in this contemporary account capture or are echoed, um, I should perhaps say, in this analysis from Heather Crawford, a, an academic in a 2010 book, um, who argues that these tensions endured for decades to come, as you know, um, she says the sheer durability of this underlying current of something that is difficult to name but which, which could perhaps best be described as an alienating sensation of lack of safety a strangeness is remarkable and this of course is something very difficult to pinpoint um, you know, intellectually and we can use different theories civil war theories um, work on intimidation but I think that captures it quite, quite nicely this sensation, this lack of safety even if it's not physical um, brutality that you're facing day to day it is um, something acutely alienating and difficult. So given these deep-seated, almost subconscious nature of interdenominational resentments, which of course we might observe um, elsewhere in Ireland, north and south, and indeed around the world, it's important, um, especially now at this, this kind of commemorative moment, to highlight the discrepancy between sort of what happens in rhetoric, the proposed fair treatment of religious and ethnic groups at a state level, from a legal perspective and the lived experience, the reality on the ground. Analysis of local civil war violence shows that the Free State's inclusive rhetoric of early 1922 wasn't always turned into action. Protestants certainly weren't murdered by the state or by angry, angry Catholic mobs, but they were sometimes and acutely in some areas driven out by subtle intimidatory tactics. And of course, that's not to say that Catholics were exempt from targeted violence, as I hope I've shown with some of my examples today. You know, there's testimonies from hundreds of small farmers, loyalists, ex-soldiers, RAC men um, who suffered attacks on their land and person. But who you were clearly mattered. Uh, the Irish Revolution was a period of political, constitutional change, but it was also a process of establishing the kind of country an independent island in the south and a partitioned Northern Ireland state and would become. And my research, um, as Marie mentioned right at the start, is, is on the former, uh, the, the free state. Um, now that the British rule had ended in the south, what was the essence of free state Irishness? And it's during this process of identity formation, um, which I think intersects as well with the political debates over sort of colonialism, post-colonialism, Bill was talking about. One's denomination uh, represented a, a potentially insurmountable hurdle to full integration. 
to be Protestant in the 26 counties, at least, was to be labelled privileged, British, uh, loyalist, to be associated with the old regime. It was to be deemed possibly less Irish than the majority. And in reaching these conclusions, um, I make a case that the study of Ireland's civil war adds to wider understanding of internal conflict um, around the globe. Uh, and it's particularly great that we've got a Finnish perspective today. So seminal civil war theorist Stathis Clevas describes the process by which civil war violence becomes, quote, an end in itself rather than a means to political ends. And it's true that given the breakdown of, of law and order in some areas, revenge and personal disputes of the kind that Clevas talks about fueled some actions in the Irish civil war. But I, didn't want to, I don't want to take the politics out of this too much. And I think that politics, and particularly identity politics, weren't absent from communal violence. Ireland's micro and macro conflicts, in fact, aligned and interact more closely than has been observed of civil wars elsewhere in the world. As the Republican faction in the door rejected the treaty's maintenance of the link with Britain via the oath of allegiance to the crown, so too was violence on the ground in Ireland driven by a need to purge from the newly independent state those loyal to the old administration. Indeed, by placing the Irish Civil War in perspective, um, which is exactly what we're all doing today, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's helpful in providing new frameworks outside sort of military and war studies narratives to confront the past and scrutinise violence. And this is what we've got to keep doing a century on, is to examine the conflict, the nature of the violence, remember those who died, and in doing so, hopefully reach a close understanding of the character of the revolution and the social, cultural and religious conflicts that accompanied the political struggle and establishment of two new states. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this History Hub podcast. You can find hundreds of episodes on our website at historyhub.ie.